morning. I'm especially blessed today because one, obviously the elders have given me the opportunity to preach the word this morning, for which I'm very, very grateful. But then I get to follow up after baptisms. And I think that's the sermon right there, wasn't it? I mean, it's so amazing to see what God has done in their lives, bringing people to a point of understanding their need for Christ and for repentance. And I appreciate Pastor Brian for praying for us. Um, But we're going to have to power through this, right, to get through. And we have quite a lengthy passage today. But I believe the Lord has something very important, very special for us to hear. Now, one of the things I love in the scriptures are when the Bible gives comparisons. And it does that often. Wisdom and foolishness, life and death, light, darkness, Cain, Abel, Esau, Jacob. It does that all throughout the scriptures. And we're going to look at the book of Hebrews today. And in Hebrews, you could call that a book of comparisons, really. If you turn your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 12, Hebrews chapter 12, Hebrews is an entire book built on comparisons. And the comparisons are there to show us that Jesus is better. He's better than the angels. You see that in chapter 1. He's better than the high priestly ministry of Israel in chapters 3 and 5. He's better than the Sabbath day of rest, chapter 4. He's better than this mysterious character that we see in Genesis by the name of Melchizedek. You see that in chapter 7. He's better than the, the, the covenant that he, he brings forth is better than the old covenant. You see that in chapters 8 and 9. He's better than the sacrificial system of the Old Testament paradigm. You see that in chapter 10. Well, now in chapter 12, we have a different comparison. We're comparing mountains. Mount Sinai and Mount Zion. It's a comparison of the reality of the Christian life on this side of the cross of Christ in comparison to life in the Old Testament at Mount Sinai. It's really a comparison of the two covenants. The covenant, the old covenant, which was based on the law, and the new covenant, which is based upon faith in Jesus Christ. It's a comparison of how a person may encounter God and what flows out from that encounter with God. Well, let's look at chapter 12. We're going to start with verse 18. For you have not come to a mountain that can be touched, and to a blazing fire, to darkness and gloom and whirlwind, and to the blast of a trumpet and the sound of words which sound was such that those who heard begged that no further word be spoken to them. For they could not bear the command, if even a beast touches the mountain, it will be stoned. And it was so terrible, the sight, that Moses said, I am full of fear and trembling. This is Mount Sinai. Mount Sinai. It is a mountain of fear. And if you have the little handouts, I have them out in the music stands, you'll see that the first point is encountering God without a mediator, a go-between, will always lead to terror every single time. And Mount Sinai is a mountain of terror. Now, I I want you to keep your finger here in in, uh, Hebrews, whether you put your little notes there or not. But I want us to go to the original. I want us to go to the book of Exodus, chapter 19. So we're going to go back and forth a little bit. Because I want you to see it in the original. 
uh, originally spoken in, in Exodus chapter 19. We're going to start with verse 1, and we're going to kind of pepper through a few verses here and there. But I want you to see what Israel was experiencing on Mount Sinai. So Exodus chapter 19, starting with verse 1. In the third month after the sons of Israel had gone out of the land of Egypt, on that very day they came into the wilderness of Sinai. Now go to verse 4. You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now then, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, then you shall be my own possession among the peoples, for all the earth is mine. And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the sons of Israel. And I'll go to verse 8. All the people answered together and said, All that the Lord has spoken, we will do. Well, that was a pretty quick answer. And Moses brought back the words of the people to the Lord. All right, let me set the stage. Now, Israel was in captivity in Egypt. They were slaves there for, for, for centuries. And God brought them out through miraculous wonders. You know the story. Moses comes in, and we've got the song, Pharaoh, Pharaoh, let my people go. Over and over again, and Pharaoh stubbornly hardens his heart. It says, no, my, those people can't leave. I'm going to make their work and their slavery even more difficult. And God says, all right, we're going to see who is actually in charge here. And he brings the plagues of Egypt, one after the other, which really corresponded to an Egyptian god, that he was showing that there is no god but the Lord over and over again to the very end in the last plague of the firstborn being slaughtered the egyptians were begging them to leave it was such a mighty monumental thing victory had finally come to israel and they start marching their way out and then pharaoh has a change of heart it says let's chase them down and kill them as they leave and that's when the Red Sea swallows them all up. Israel was experiencing victory upon victory, miracle upon miracle. And then they get to the wilderness or the desert of Sinai. Probably the worst possible place in that area that you could be. <clears throat> very isolated, very arid, dry. But yet still, water was coming from rocks. Manna was coming from the sky. I mean, God was providing for these people. And so now God tells them through the prophet Moses, I'm going to come and I'm going to talk to you. I'm going to give you my covenant. And I'm sure Israel's like, yes, finally, we get to see the God who's been so good to us, who has done these mighty things, who thinks we're the greatest thing since all of creation, obviously. And this is what happens. Verse 18 of chapter 19. Verse 18. Now, Mount Sinai... Actually, let's go to verse 17, right up above it. Then Moses brought the people out to the camp to meet God. And they stood at the foot of the mountain. Now, Mount Sinai was all in smoke because the Lord descended upon it in fire. And its smoke ascended like the smoke of a furnace and the whole mountain shook. Uh, quaked violently. When the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder, Moses spoke and God answered him with thunder. May not have been exactly what Israel was expecting. Because look over at chapter 20 and verse 18. This is their response. And all the people perceived the thunder and the lightning flashes and the sound of the trumpet and the mountain smoking. When the people saw it, they trembled and stood at a distance. Then they said to Moses, Speak to us yourself and we will listen. 
but do not let God speak to us or we will die. Probably a different conception of God than they could possibly have imagined. Here God was so radically on their side, doing miracles on their behalf. It was Egypt who was the recipient of the bad stuff. And yet when we come to the mountain, all of a sudden God shows up and scares us to death. The mountain is shaking. There's this massive earthquake. And a mountain that is just, it's just a normal mountain, all of a sudden starts erupting in flame, fire, and smoke. And any time the Lord said something, it was like lightning and thunder. They were scared to death. You say, well, why in the world would the Lord appear to them like this? Well, the purpose of this encounter with God was to bring the law. You saw that back in 19. He said, if you then indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you should be my own possession. Chapters 20 through 30, 31 even, God is giving his law. And the law without a mediator will always bring terror. There is no chance, no possible way that you could ever keep the law's demands. I want you to understand what a frightening sight this was. I remember my wife and I, we were blessed with a vacation to Costa Rica once. And, and we went to this little resort. It's called Tobacón. And it's right on the base of Mount Arenal. It's an active volcano. And there's these mineral, pool, uh, mineral pools. And you can get in these pools. And it's super, super hot. But it makes you feel really great. And, and as the sun starts darkening, you can actually see the glow of lava as it kind of goes on the other side of the, of the volcano. It's just active. It's always doing that. Of course, in my mind, I'm laying there going, I wonder if the lava is going to ever flow on this side of the, of the volcano. But it was such a gorgeous sight, not once did I ever feel afraid. It was relaxing. It was beautiful. And here, they're experiencing something different. They're coming up to Sinai, scared to death. This thing is belching out smoke like they have never seen before. It's on fire because the Lord came down and stood on it to give his law. Now, we have to understand the nature of the law, folks. Because when humans create laws, we have these old men and women that sit in these big black robes behind decks that almost look kind of like this, I guess. And they think, well, what law can we come up with that uh, can control the people and would be good for our society? That's not how God creates laws. The law that God created was an expression or an extension of his character. It's who he is. People, you want to have a relationship with me? Let me show you who I am. I am holy. You better be holy. I don't steal. I don't lie. I don't bear false witness. I don't do any of these things. Therefore, to experience me, you can't do any of these things. You have to do it perfectly every single time. That's the reality of life before the cross. And not only is God the lawgiver, he's the judge. And the judge shows up in all of his glory to show us we can't be anything that God is. We need a mediator. And you might be saying, well, Moses, right? Moses was a go-between, yes, but he really wasn't a mediator. He was a prophet. He came to give the words of the law to, uh, to Israel. 
for, for God, on behalf of God. He wasn't a mediator that could take away sins. He wasn't a mediator that can assuage the wrath of an almighty, just lawgiver. He couldn't do it. There was no mediator. And in fact, here, there seemed to be a lot of condescension on God's behalf. Here's the law. Do it. It says in verse 5 of chapter 19, Now then, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, if then, got to love those if-then statements, if you obey my voice and keep my covenant, then you shall be my possession. There's not a lot of condescension of God here. Now you think, well, there's the sacrifices Yes, there was grace. I'm, I'm acknowledging the fact that there was grace in the Old Testament, the sacrificial system, but year after year after year, they had to bring offering after offering after offering because they could not fully and finally remove sin. They could not assuage the anger of God for sinfulness. Someone had to do it on their behalf. This is why Mount Sinai is terrifying and the voice from the mountain was terrifying. But folks, this is is how we encounter God without Christ. If we are here, if you have not given your life to Christ and asked for his forgiveness and for his mercy, you are going to encounter God at Mount Sinai. may not be now, it may be later when the Lord calls you home, but you will experience the lawgiver and the judge. Did you keep it perfectly? every single time without fail. You see, Israel couldn't even bear to hear God's voice. Stop. Moses, make him stop. Let him talk to you and then you come talk to us. But to show you how deep the sinfulness went, that while Moses said, all right, let's go hang on to that and I'll go up to the mountain and we'll start etching out these 10 commandments and working all this stuff out, Israel went down and started worshiping a calf. They took from their sinfulness, they went, Moses was a little bit longer than he said he might be. And so, hey, he must be dead, so let's worship a calf. While all of this stuff is going on, Israel themselves proved that they could not meet the law's demands. Can you meet the law's demands? Are you trying to meet the law's demands by being good enough? It's not going to happen, and you will face the God of Mount Sinai. You know, the book of Hebrews is written to believers. They have believers in mind. And I sometimes wonder how many of us believers who have come to Christ still view God as the God on Mount Sinai. The moment I mess up, there's going to be fire and smoke and the ground is going to shake and God speaks and I can't bear to hear it. I had a friend tell me once that when he felt like he was wrestling with God about sinfulness in his life, it's like he didn't even want to talk to God. He's just, I know God is there. I know there's mercy and forgiveness, but I can't, I can't think about the Lord because I'm so racked with my own guilt. That's the same thing that Israel did. Moses, you go talk to God, okay, and then you come and talk to us. Okay, you just, I can't hear this anymore. But believer, you didn't come to Mount Sinai. Why do you still view God like the God of Mount Sinai? Jesus took the wrath of the God of Mount Sinai on your behalf. Which really leads us to our second point, that encountering God through the mediator, Jesus Christ, leads to glory and victory. 
Now back to Hebrews chapter 12. Look at verse 23 through 24. Or 22 through 24, excuse me, 22 through 24. I love it. Here's the contrast, right? But you have come to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to the myriads of angels, to the general assembly and the church of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of the new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood which speaks better of Abel. I love this because encountering God through the mediator, Jesus Christ, brings victory and it brings glory. He said, you didn't come to Mount Sinai. You've come to Zion. You know, it's interesting that he uses that term Zion and he does that throughout the scriptures. You know, if you go to Israel, now I haven't been to Israel. I really would like to go, but I haven't been to Israel. But from people that have been there and pictures that I've seen, you know, Mount Zion is not very impressive. And there's a monastery on it, but, you know, there's really nothing there. And it's not really a mountain. I think mountain is kind of a grandiose term for this little, little grade of the hill. That, that's Mount Zion. It's really not much there. I mean, it's not where the temple is. That's Mount Moriah. Mount Zion was the place where, where David put his throne, and he would reign there. But Zion now here refers to something spiritual, not something physical. And that's a good thing. Because in order to encounter God before Christ in, in the Old Testament, you had to go to Sinai. You had to go to a physical, an, an exact geographical location just to meet God. But Zion is not physical. It's not geographic. It spans the, it, it goes through all the, the boundaries and borders of our countries. Anyone from anywhere because it's a spiritual place. And God loves that term Zion. I love it. He didn't use the term, or you've, not, you've come to Moriah, because we would think temple. But instead, we're thinking Jesus Christ, where, he, where David himself, who Jesus is in the line and lineage of David, David put his throne, and the covenant of David was that God was going to establish his throne forever. Right there in Mount Zion, it's always a special term God uses to describe the place where he lavishes his love and grace on people. And we just have always used that term, even in modern days. What do they call somebody who's just very radically in support of Israel? A Zionist. <laughs> even though Zion, you're like, what's, what's Zionist? If you, you go to Mount Zion, like I said, it's nothing special. But it's special. It's a special term that God uses to say, this is the place where I lavish my love and my grace on people. You didn't go to Sinai. You went to Zion, that special place of love. Do you see why the author of Hebrews wants the people to get it through their heads? You're not at Sinai anymore. That's not the God that you have to be concerned with. You came to Zion, the place of grace, the place of love, mercy, forgiveness. That's where you are. There's no shaking of the ground. There's no fire and smoke. It's the open arms of Jesus Christ through the gospel and the cross. He says, but you have come to Mount Zion, and I love this, and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem. The city of the living God. Not this massive, sprawling country where you can be really far from the capital. It's a city 
We're all together in this. God prepared it for you. In fact, Jesus himself said in the book of, in, in the book of John, I go and prepare a place for you. Where is he talking about? Zion, the city of the living God. He uses the word living to contrast it with the death of the old covenant. And if they even touched the mountain, they had to put boundaries around Mount Sinai because if they even touched the mountain, they would drop dead. If an animal touched it, you had to stone it. Everything about the old covenant was about death because no one could keep it. You know, the point of the law was not so that you can work really hard and keep it. The point of the law was to show you that you can't and that you need help. It was our schoolmaster, as the Apostle Paul says. It teaches us our need for the mediator, Jesus Christ, the only one who can meet all of its demands perfectly every moment of every single day. And that's what it's about. The old covenant was death. You touch the mountain, you die. The sacrifices were a reminder of death over and over and over again. There's a lot. Read the book of Leviticus. It's a lot of bloodletting, a lot of waving of body parts, and a lot of slinging blood on altars and other things. A lot of that stuff going on. A lot of death. High priest, year after year, offer sacrifices on the Day of Atonement. He would die. And you think, well, what about Christ? Did he not die? Yes, he did. But he lives forever. He died and was raised to newness of life. Now, I'm going to give you some terms that I give my 7th and 8th grade Old Testament students in the academy. Type and anti-type. And some of you all that have been in my class, you know those terms, so we drill it into you. Type and anti-type. A type is an example of something. An anti-type is the thing that has an example. In the Old Testament, the mountain of Sinai, the sacrifices, the high priest, it was all a foreshadowing of the anti-type, the one who is to come, Jesus Christ. You're in Hebrews. Go back to chapter 8 of Hebrews. Hebrews chapter 8. Goodness. We're going to look at verses 1 through 6. Now the main point, and what we have said is this. We have such a high priest who has taken his seat at the right hand of the throne of the majesties in the heavens, a minister in the sanctuary, and the true tabernacle which the Lord pitched, not man. For every high priest is appointed to offer both gifts and sacrifices, so it is necessary that this high priest also have something to offer. Now, if he were on earth, he would not be a priest at all, since there are those who offer gifts according to the law, who serve as a copy and shadow of the heavenly things. Just as Moses was warned by God when he was said to erect the tabernacle, for he said, See that you make all things according to the pattern which was shown on the mountain. But now he has obtained a more excellent ministry by as much as he is also the mediator of a better covenant, which has been acted on better promises. The Old Testament sacrificial system, the Old Testament tabernacle and temple, the Old Testament high priest, it was all to show us the ministry of Jesus Christ who was to come. This is what Jesus said in John chapter 5, verse 39. He's talking to the Pharisees. and They were grumbling against him as always. And he said, you diligently search the scriptures because you think that in them you might have eternal life. Okay, well, that's good so far. But the understood statement was you don't have eternal life. 
Because he continues on and says, it is they, the scriptures, that testify about me. You Pharisees have not entered into salvation because you keep missing what the Old Testament has been trying to teach. That one, we can't keep the law, we need someone to do it for us, and that every little aspect of the ceremonial sacrificial system was to point to the one who was going to come, do it once for all, securing our way to the presence of God. So that we no longer have to confront a God like the God at Mount Sinai. We now get to experience the love and grace of the God of Mount Zion. Look at chapter 9 and verse 11. Though when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things to come, he entered through the greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, that is to say, not of this creation, and not through the blood of bull and calves and goats, but through his own blood he entered the holy place once for all, having obtained eternal redemption. For if the blood of bulls and goats and the ashes of a heifer sprinkling those who have been defiled sanctify for the cleansing of flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, Cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God. For this reason, he is the mediator of the new covenant. So that since a death has taken place for the redemption of the transgressions that were committed under the first covenant, those who have been called may receive the promise of eternal inheritance. You see the beauty of what the author of Hebrews is conveying? That all of this stuff was a shadow of what Jesus Christ would do. This is the city that we enter into. It was his blood that was shed. That kind of jumps us down really to verse 24 of chapter 12. But he is that mediator. The scripture said he went into the antitype of the temple, which is in heaven, and offered his blood before God in heaven. And it says, which speaks better than the blood of Abel. Do you see that in that passage? I might have confused you a little bit. The blood of Abel. Well, you know, Abel and Cain and Abel, right? From, from uh, all the way back, first children of Adam and Eve. They offered sacrifices, did they not? Cain offered from the cursed of the ground. Abel offered lambs, the firstborn, the best of the flock. Abel's was accepted and he was killed for it. His blood was spilt. And we, the Old Testament always looked back to that event as a foreshadowing of Jesus Christ who offered the greater sacrifice, whose blood was accepted by God. His blood was better. You know, I love this city. You know, in this city, he talks about it being full of myriads of angels. We don't use that word very much anymore, do we? Myriads. It's an awful lot of angels. What are these angels doing? You know, even in this passage, the myriads of angels, there's a contrast actually going on. Do you know there were angels in Mount Sinai? Now, we didn't read it in that particular passage, but you can look at it in, in the Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy chapter 33 and verse 2. It says that there were 10,000 angels at Mount Sinai. What were those angels doing? They sure welcoming, weren't welcoming Israel in with open arms. They're keeping people away. They were administering the law. 
They were part of the flashes of thunder and smoke and lightning. They were not something that you wanted to approach and see. Isn't it funny how we have, did you ever go into a bathroom? Or Usually these things are found in bathrooms. They have these little cherub pictures or statues, right? And it's always like this fat little baby and cute little cheeks and rosy and tiny little wings that are impossibly small to lift anything off the ground. And, and we're like, oh, that's an angel, right? Angels were actually rather terrifying to see. You know, anytime an angel appeared to a human being in Scripture, the first thing the angel said is, don't die. <laughs> because fear not, okay? Because everyone would quake in such terror at seeing something so otherworldly and different. <gasps> oh, relax. It's okay. I'm coming from God. It's good. <laughs> it was the first thing that they had to see, or had to say. There were 10,000 of these frightening things at Sinai. And it's nothing compared to the angels that are at the city of Jerusalem, except they're not holding you back. That's what angels actually did often in the Old Testament. In fact, you see that first happening in the Garden of Eden. When God pushed Adam and Eve out of the garden, he set up an angel with a flaming sword to keep them out. You have Sinai in a similar function, but not you. You see, you didn't come to Mount Sinai if you're in Christ. You came to Mount Zion. They're welcoming you. Scripture says that they're ministering servants to those who are inheriting salvation. They do the word of the Lord. They do what the Lord commands, but they're cheering you on because you're part of this grand plan of redemption that God is bringing out across the world. I love this city. It's just the general assembly. It's like a big church. We're all getting together in this church of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven. If you're here by faith in Christ, you came to Mount Zion, you've enrolled yourself in this city in heaven. Your name is on the roll. Now, our academy students just started up recently, and you have some students that are in school. One of the first things that you do is take roll, don't you? They call the names off the list. Present, present, present. Hopefully all of them are present. Your names are on the roll of heaven because you've come to Mount Zion through the mediatory work of Jesus Christ. Think about that. And there's no, there's no way you're going to be absent when the roll is called because he's coming to take you. And you're going to be there, and they look at the roll, and there you are. And it wasn't because you did the works of the law. It's because of what Jesus did for you. He did it perfectly, and now you are found in him. That's what we say at baptism, isn't it? Buried with Christ in his death, raised to walk in newness of life. Our life in Christ is unified. We're unified with Jesus Christ. We are tied and bound up with him. The old self that had to meet the demands of the law died with Jesus Christ. And when Jesus rose, we rose as something new. And your name is enrolled in heaven this amazing city. And then you get to verse 25. This little warning. He's like, knowing all of this, right? See to it that you do not refuse him who is speaking. This is so important. Because now, the author of Hebrews is writing to Christians, yes, but he's also envisioning that there are lost people here listening to this too. See to it that you don't refuse him who is speaking. I can almost see the, the author look at the people and say, what are you afraid of? What's holding you back? 
He's calling you. Don't refuse the call. Right now, you do not have to meet the God of Mount Sinai. If Christ is calling you to salvation, repent and believe. You must do that. Don't refuse it. What are you waiting for? I remember I was, I was leading my stepbrother to the Lord one time. I was sharing the gospel with him, and all kinds of questions kind of came up. Well, is he going to tell me that I can't do this? Is he telling me that I can't do that? And is he going to make me go to Africa? Is he going to make, you know, all these crazy questions. And I knew he, you know, he really wasn't there yet. I knew that the Lord was working on his heart, but he wasn't quite there yet. And, and it just kind of showed this misunderstanding of God and even this great fear of God. What is he going to make me do? We're still thinking of God as God at Mount Sinai. There is nothing you need to do Jesus did it for you. Trust in what he's done. Put your faith in him. But believer too, because this was written believers as well. Is he calling you? Is he calling you to repentance for something in your life? Is he calling you to a deeper level of service? What are you afraid of? You didn't come to, to Sinai. You came to Zion. You don't have to encounter God like it's Sinai. I love how he says, see to it that you do not refuse him who is speaking. Remember Mount Sinai? They didn't even want God to talk to them. They were that afraid of God. Don't just, Moses, tell God to stop. Let him talk to you. You guys have a private conversation, and then you can text it to us, and we'll do it, right? Jesus in John chapter 10 and verse 1 through 5 said, my sheep hear my voice, and they know me and they follow me. I go out in front of them, and they follow me. Is Jesus calling you? Do you know his voice today? Follow him. Don't be afraid of God, both believer and unbeliever. In Christ, you don't have to be afraid of God. You see, this is a whole new life, and I kind of let that cat out of the bag there. And if you look at your notes, I do have kind of like a, a note-taking faux pas where I have encountering God and two of the points and then something new with the second two points. But it kind of works because you don't encounter God with a mediator and not have a changed life. And you don't just simply encounter God after coming to Christ. It's a new life now that you have in Jesus Christ. It's like we've seen here witnessed in baptism. So that's why I use these new terms. Our new life in Christ leads to peace and security. Look at verse 26. And his voice shook the earth then. Remember when God was speaking to Mount Sinai? It was a big earthquake. The mountains shook. And they were scared to death because of it. You, you ever experienced an earthquake? I'm not from California. I've only ex experienced some, some tremors twice. Once when I was a little, little boy. Uh, I was up in Connecticut at my great-grandmother's house. And I remember all the knickknacks, which my grandmother had tons of, on, 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 the, on the whatever they were called, started shaking. And I remember everyone's reaction to that was, stopped and we looking around because it's not natural. Something weird is going on. It puts us into panic mode. Second time I felt that was up in Virginia. And it was, it was actually an earthquake. It was a very mild earthquake. I was in tax class in law school, which is arguably the most boring class imaginable. And Judge Spinden was our teacher. And he wasn't the most boring teacher imaginable. So if he's watching, I love you, Judge Spinden. Um, he was teaching doing his best to teach, and all of a sudden the ground started shaking. 
And it was a harder shake than just a simple tremor. It was up in Virginia. And I looked up, and there's this big, because it's a big, one of those big classrooms. I looked up, and, and there was a speaker. It was like, I'm like, oh, boy. And we all stopped, and everyone had the same reaction. We didn't know what to do. We were kind of half up out of our seats, but not really moving because we weren't sure what's going on. And here's Judge Spindon leaned up against the whiteboard, just teaching away all through this. The speakers are swaying, and we're like getting freaked out in the class. And he stopped and goes, what? And like, I, I said, Judge Spindon, you don't feel the shaking going on? He's like, oh, yeah, that. He says, well, I'm going to keep teaching. If you want to leave, you can leave. <laughs> the shaking that Israel experienced wasn't quite that mild. It was enough to scare them to death. And if you've ever been through an earthquake, you get scared when something like that happens. He says here that he, his voice shook the earth then, but now he has promised, yet once more I will shake not only the earth, but also the heaven. This expression, yet once more, denotes the removing of those things which can be shaken as of created things, so that those which cannot be shaken may remain. Therefore, since we receive a kingdom which cannot be shaken, let us show gratitude. The kingdom that we live in, this new city, this new life that we have in Jesus Christ, gives us peace and security because no matter what's going on in the world around us, you cannot be shaken. God shakes things both temporally and eternally. There's a lot of shaking going on in our country now, isn't there? Politically, I don't even watch the news anymore. Politically, there's some awesome shaking going on. All over the world, there's a lot of shaking going on. Not, not necessarily earthquake shaking, but things that are shaking up the paradigm of how things happen. A lot of craziness and a lot of uncertainty. The economy is shaking. That's what he says, the removal of things that can, that can be shaken. And God will do that, right? Where is your hope your hope is that you're part of this new kingdom through Christ. Though things shake up around you. You lose your job. The economy goes, goes south on you. Politically, people are coming to office you may or may not agree with or you may not like. You still have peace and security because you know you're part of a kingdom that can never be shaken. They may take my car. They may take my house. They may take my life. But I will never be shaken because I am enrolled in heaven because of the work of Jesus Christ. This is the shake, the unshakable kingdom that we have. And that leads us to serve a gospel-driven service. He said, because you know that you're part of Mount Zion, because you know that you're in a kingdom that cannot be shaken, let us show gratitude by which we may offer to God an acceptable service with reverence and awe for our God is a consuming fire. It's interesting that he ends that. We're reminded of the God of Mount Sinai and think, thank heavens, I don't have to do that. Thank heavens, because of the blood of Jesus Christ, I live in peace and security. And because I'm so grateful and so thankful, God, let me do something for you. Let me serve you. Let me go reach out to people who are going to encounter God on Mount Sinai. Let's go reach them for Jesus Christ. Let's serve within the church and encourage each other and remember, remind them that they're part of a kingdom that cannot be shaken. I want to do this, not because I have to. That's law. I do it because I'm filled with gratitude. I love God. I get to do this now. That's what he's saying in this passage. And that's that final reminder for God is a consuming fire. 
And I'm reminded what, what uh, Paul says in, in uh, uh, 1 Corinthians. He says, at the end of all things, he doesn't use the shaking terminology, but he uses the burning terminology. He says, no one can lay any other foundation that which is laid except for Jesus Christ. But that time is coming, where judgment is coming, both temporally and eternally, where all of our works will show for what it, what it is. Whether it was built on the foundation of Christ, or can it be burned down, or can it be, can it be shaken away, or will it remain? This is the comparison of the two mountains. So what mountain are you on? Where are you? If you're not here by faith in Jesus Christ, I don't want you to encounter God like Israel encountered God on Mount Sinai. But if you start feeling that dread, that's your chance to say, Jesus, save me. Forgive me of my sin. I am in terror because I know I cannot meet your demands, God. But Jesus did, forgive me. Maybe you're here and you've done that, but you still view God like this angry, vengeful God on Mount Sinai. At the moment you mess up, that's it. The ground's going to shake. He's going to smack things out of your life. Oh, he may bring discipline to our lives, but that's not how God wants us to view him. You came to Mount Zion. Think about all that Jesus took on your behalf. Jesus, with your sin in his life that was put on him, experienced that God so you don't have to. So get up. Serve him. Be grateful for what the Lord has done for you. You didn't come to Mount Sinai. You've come to Mount Zion. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for your grace and your mercy. I thank you, Lord, that we didn't come to Sinai. I thank you that you sent your son so that we don't have to experience that fear. I pray for the person here today that's unsaved. Save them. Draw them to Christ. For the, for the saved person here that is still in terror of you, help them not to view you that way. Motivate us to serve you with reverence and awe, knowing what an amazing God you are for us. We put our trust in you. In Jesus' name, amen.